Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. Yes, we are recording. Everybody good today? Ready for uh, the weekend? Good stuff. It's Friday today. So um, today we're going to sort of reprise a, a topic that we discussed a couple of weeks ago with a special guest who really wanted to come on and um, and clear the air. So that's what we're doing today. But first, that was Bill Sutton at the top of the podcast. Hiya, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also here is Brendan O'Reilly. Hiya, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. My name is Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor. And also with us is Joe Shaw. How are you, Joe? Good, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is New York State Assemblyman Fred Thiel, Sag Harbor resident. And um, he and Joe are ready for a cage match, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, that's why we're doing this remotely, right? They'd want us in the same room at the same yeah, time. Yeah, don't let Fred and Joe in the same room. <laughs> I wanted to stay out of arm's length. So Fred Beal, a fellow Pittsburgh Steelers fan, a big fan of the 27 Speaks podcast, I believe, Fred, right? It is regular listening for my uh, for, for my six-mile walk every Saturday. So and I'm really happy about that. That's nice yeah. to hear. But, except, but, except with last week's podcast, I had to walk eight miles instead of six miles. <laughs> See, we're doing you a favor. <laughs> so it, it was sort of a double whammy. We did an editorial and we did a podcast. And um, I kind of expected to hear from Fred. Um on the subject. And I think it's only fair to give Fred airtime to air his grievances about um, the editorial and the podcast and some of the remarks, I think specifically that I made. Um, we're talking about the Community Preservation Fund and the editorial and the podcast both raised the point that at least to some degree, it may be time to acknowledge that the CPF purchases, which preserved land on the South Fork and throughout the East End may have contributed in some way to the affordable housing crisis that we are experiencing. I do wanna, ha I, I wanna hasten to add that in both the editorial and on the podcast, I think we went out of our way to say, nobody is suggesting that the CPF was a bad thing. Everybody agrees it was absolutely a home run and essential for the the uh, what the South Fork is and what the East End is right now, but Fred, you take exception to even raising the issue, right? And 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 I think one of the points you've made, and I'll let you make it, is is that that's not nearly the most significant factor in what's created the the affordable housing crisis. I think that's a fair uh, uh, description of my position. You know, to kind of use an analogy. If this was, if the housing crisis was a flood and there was a hurricane off the coast and there was, it was, uh, it was high tide and, uh, you know, and some guy was on the beach throwing a rock into the, into the ocean. Oh, and it was a full moon. 
full moon, high tide, and a hurricane, and a guy standing on the beach with a rock threw it in the water, your editorial would have been, let's look at the guy throwing the rock in the water, okay? Um, and and the, re the reason why I feel that is, you know, by definition, the community preservation fund, the, re the revenues that are raised, are only 2% of, of any given year. In fact, it's less than 2%. Um, you know, in, in, in the, I won't, I won't use the, the pandemic years because they're so high, but, you know, in saying, let's use 2019, you know, roughly there was, it was, there was $5 billion of real estate activity here and the community preservation fund in Southampton raised about $50 million that year. Um, and, you know, it, it is, you know, $50 million, there were, you know, I, I looked at, at the numbers, there were, I, there were probably four or five single transactions that, that were more than the $50 million that's in the Community Preservation Fund. You know, over 25 years uh, of the Community Preservation Fund in, in Southampton Town, I'm going to use Southampton as the example, roughly about 5,000 acres has been preserved in Southampton. That's 200 acres a year in a town that has 69,000 acres of property. Um, so, you know, I, I just think on, on scale, you know, what's, what was a bigger factor? What's a bigger factor? Uh, the fact that the, the, the Community Preservation Fund participates in the real estate market to the extent of about 2%, or in that year that I mentioned, 2019, that just on Wall Street, just bonuses, not salaries, just bonuses. Bonuses in 2019 were $27.3 billion. Um, you've got roughly 15 million people living within 125 miles of, of the East End in what is the finance in New York City, which is the financial center of the universe. It's it, listen, every factor has an impact. Uh, on on the market, all of these factors do, but the community preservation fund and land preservation in general is a very, 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 very small factor uh, with regard to impacting that compared to the number of people that you know that that basically the second home market uh, and you know those 15 million people and you know all of the money that gets made. The, our real estate market has also always been heavily influenced by by Wall Street. And it's really the seasonal, the second home industry. I a lot of these people have more than second homes, but that I, I think have a, a much, much bigger impact. And you know, again, you know, there there's been certain tropes that have always been said about land preservation. You know, hey, if you do too much land preservation, it's you're going to take lands off the tax rolls. And your taxes are going to be too high. Uh, if you put a tax like the CPF on the real estate market, you're going to destroy the market. Uh, and if you if you put if you do land preservation, it takes away from affordable housing. All of those things really have been discredited through the years. You know, mm -hmm. the only one folks talking about you know that anymore. Those kinds of things. You know. Or like the same people that are standing in front of the Texas School Book Depository waiting for JFK Jr. to show up. All right. I mean, you know, those, you know, 
every town, and I, you know, I think in, in the town of Southampton, you know, is, you, you know, you've, You've, you have to have a comprehensive plan and that plan has to be balanced. You know, it has to provide for housing. It has to provide for land preservation, open space, recreation, land for industry, land for, you know, business and commercial endeavors. And, and I think, you know, the town has a, a balanced plan. Uh, but, you know, I, you know, what Jay Schneiderman said that you quoted is something that I had said probably 50 times during the, the housing referendum. You know, I would say, you know, the community preservation fund, we've done a good job with regard to land preservation and protecting rural character, but rural character, but, you know, the, because of the market, you know, we haven't done a good job in being able to respond to, to affordable housing. So, I mean, we agree with that, but, you know, I didn't hear Jay say, nor would I say that it was the preservation that caused that problem. Uh, it's like we did really well on one, but not that well on the other. We have a transportation problem on the East End. I don't think the community preservation fund caused that either. Right. So, you know, listen, I, I, I think your the points of the editorial that I agreed with, and I and I and I said this to you, is that you know there needs to be you know, we're, I've always said we're not going to build our way out of this crisis because we have to make existing housing more affordable also. But we're also not going to do it without building some housing. And mm -hmm. that means that, you know, you're, you're going to need to, to provide, you know, density. But that density has to be provided in the right locations. It has to be provided Absolutely. where there's infrastructure, where there are services, where people maybe can walk to shop, you know, basically around downtowns, you know, apartments over stores. And, you know, that would be my other, you know, you know, kind of complaint about the editorial is that, you know, the lands that have been acquired, that 200 acres a year on average for 25 years, you know, that was pine barrens, that was farmland, that was mm -hmm. wetlands protection, historic sites. You know, yeah, th those lands were taken off, you know, were, were, were taken out of out of the inventory, but were we really going to build affordable housing, you know, in the Pine Barrens? Were we going to build it on farmland? Were we, were we going to put 15 units per acre next to uh, wetlands? And, and, you know, and I think not. That's a, that's a fair point. No question. I think one, one of the things that people would say is that taking thousands of acres out of the equation has only pushed the, the value of the land up further. But th there's I think your point is a good I'll, I'll argue against my point, which is that you're right. The lands that were preserved were not going to turn into affordable housing. They were going to turn into more single family houses and it wasn't going to address the problem. So I think that's fair. I, I, I will just say. That, that I think the point, and, and, and I'm not sure we did a great job of articulating it, but the point was, was more that some of the things that came into play during the years of the Community Preservation Fund, including things like the idea that any kind of density was anathema, are the kinds of things that I think we have to we have to reconsider. Well, that was before the Community Preservation Fund. I mean, 
<laughs> that you know density and affordable i mean you know those kinds of densities and big projects you know that's that's been an issue here for a long time i don't think it relates you know to the mm. community preservation fund uh you know there's been the desire you know to decrease density because of water quality because of lack of road infrastructure you know and you know it, it has you know listen there the the one thing that i think that you missed is that there needs it, it it's not just a question of what tools are available you can have all the tools available there has to be political will and my my other defense really i think of the community preservation fund doesn't get talked about because the towns never used it the community preservation fund permitted the towns to bank every development right from every purchase of land that they made. And they were also had the authority to bank them and then to transfer them to other areas for affordable housing, to meet sanitary code uh, requirements of Suffolk County, um, you know, to be able to build at higher densities. None of them did it. Just a great missed opportunity. I, I would say it, 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 it's been a missed opportunity so far, but the way the statute is written, as long as the towns didn't affirmatively extinguish those rights, they still have them. Uh, so, you know, so actually, you know, in defense of the CPF, which I obviously do a lot, uh, you know, the, the statute even provided the means by which to bank that density and use it elsewhere. But, you know, I think the bigger issue is that, that you know, is that there, except for the town of East Hampton, which I think has the exemplary record on affordable housing and has, you know, and the public has seen that and, you know, they accept it. And, and that's why it got 68% of the vote, the, the referendum did, uh, is because they work beyond that. But, but, but I give Judith Hope and Tony Bullock and sub subsequent supervisors all the credit. They took on the issue of affordable housing, you know, and issues of increased density. And people found out, well, you can do this in a way that is consistent with community character and make it happen. And people support it. In Southampton, I think the record has been been less, you know, it's been less well, it's been less well done there. And that's why I think. You know, you've had lots of controversies and it only passed with 53 percent in, in Southampton. Fred, is it fair to say that that what ended up happening was when the CPF came into to play and the town was able to buy the development rights, the idea of then transferring those development rights somewhere else got complicated and it got controversial. And I think a lot of town officials just backed away and said, let's just let's. I don't know that maybe they haven't formally extinguished those development rights, but at the time, yeah, least, I think for the most part, they haven't, I think they still have them. But at the time, at least the idea was let's not bother transferring in development rights. That gets too complicated. Let's just get rid of at the time. The focus was really more on just limiting the development and, and it accomplished that. But I think it, politically it was just, it was very difficult to explain to explain to a community, you're going to get these these transferred development. Yeah, with TDRs, everybody wants to be a sending area. Nobody exactly. wants to be a receiving right. area. It's a political hot potato. There's no question about it. Um, you know, but you know, so you know, I don't think the culprit though 
is is land preservation. It's, sure, sure. It's the will to do it because the tools were there and are there to do it. And I think, unfortunately, you know, you've heard me say this, and you, I think you said it. You know, I, I try to get this bill passed mm -hmm. for twenty years. You're talking about the housing bill. Yeah, the housing bill. There wasn't the political will, you know, to do it to tax people and then use the money for affordable housing. Literally. You know, it had to get to the point where uh, it was a crisis. And then I think people, you know, and, and to, to, to the town's credits now, credit now and to the public, you know, as you're looking at what's going on statewide and what the governor is proposing, in some ways, I think, you know, we, you know, we should be kind of proud of our community because how many towns, how many local governments were willing to tax themselves and use the proceeds now for for affordable housing, and you know that's something you know with the governor's plan. You know you should recognize communities that are willing to to, to take those kinds of affirmative steps because not every every place has been willing to do that. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books! Collections, libraries, individual titles, very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. Should we talk a little bit about the governor's pro uh, proposal? Because I'm I'm sure a lot of people don't un really know exactly what that involves. and I'm a little unsure. That's Sure, I it, it it and there's there's a lot there, but let me you know the governor basically has a proposal that would her goal is to build eight hundred thousand new housing units uh, across the state of New York, um, and the governor gets credit for recognizing that there's a housing crisis, especially coming out of the pandemic, which really has exacerbated all of this, um, and she's to be commended for having a goal. Uh, it, you know, as to you know, how many units we should we should uh, you know create to do that. You know, the the disagreement is going to be how do you accomplish that, and you know, just a little bit. You know, there's really two parts to it. In that, the first part is you would have to create three percent, an increase in three percent in housing housing units, total housing units in your town, over the next three years. Three three percent a year. Three percent in the next three years. Okay. From twenty twenty four when this would go into effect to twenty twenty seven in those three years, one percent a year on average. You'd have to have three percent. Um. So that you know that's the goal. If you don't meet that goal, you are out of what's called the safe harbor provision. If you don't meet the goal. Uh, if if someone comes into your town with an with an affordable housing project and you turn it down, uh, the that the applicant could then go to the to the uh, to a state board 
to to over override that. So I have a question about what an affordable housing project is, because my reading of the governor's press release and proposal and state of the uh, state of the state address is a project that meets certain affordability criteria. What is certain affordability criteria? Right. Yeah. So let me back up because there's really two parts to this. First of all, on the goal of 3%, to meet the 3%, none of it has to be affordable. You could just need to build 3% more housing units. None of it, none of it has to be affordable. It's just raw numbers, right? Yeah. But if if you don't meet that goal and uh, and and an affordable housing project comes in, the definition of that is that it has to be a project that at least has 25% of the units uh, available for those with a, a median family income of 50%, 50% below the median family income, uh, or 20% of, of the 50% median family income, or 25% at 80% of family income. So on the East end, you know, 50% would be, you know, for incomes that are probably in the range, family incomes around 80 or $90,000. And when you get to 80%, you're probably up around 120, 130 for a family of four. So that's how she defines at, uh, affordability. That which could be afforded, you know, either in the category, there's one category for 50% of average uh, family income and the other is 80% of, you know, and if you look at what we did in the, the community preservation fund, we went higher, we went 100%. 100% would not be affordable, uh, affordable project. You could have projects that are, would we would consider affordable in the community housing fund that the governor wouldn't consider. Mm because the incomes would be too high. So the governor's plan, as you explain it, there could be a project that a developer proposes within a half mile of the Bridgehampton train station on land that is not zoned for affordable housing, could be zoned industrial as far as I know, right? It could be zoned anything. Somebody comes in and says, I'm proposing 100 units and 75 of those units could be market rate and 25% would be 50% of AMI or below is your maximum income in order to be eligible. Right. That's very helpful to get those 25 units for people who are at half of the area median income, uh, which I believe encompasses all of Suffolk County and Nassau County. They don't actually break it down by town when they arrive at the area median income. You're right. You're right. It's Long Island wide median. So as a developer, I can now build 75 market rate units buy the Bridgehampton train station and sell those at market rate. And if Southampton town says no, the governor has a board that's going to say, sorry, they meet the criteria. You can now build this in Bridgehampton against the wishes of the Southampton town board. That is basically it. I should point out that there's, there's two parts to this. There's, there's the housing targets, the 3% we talked about, and then the second is the transit-oriented development proposal, which out in our area is um, would be within a half a mile of the train station would be 15 units per acre. Um, so uh, you would have to rezone it. It's 15 units per acre. So if you had a if if you didn't meet the housing goals, the three percent, 
and you came in with the project that you described, um, you, that's correct. There would be this state board that you could uh, that you could uh, appeal to. But Brendan's point, I think, being that it would also, in order to get those twenty five units of affordable housing, you'd have to take the seventy five units of of market rate housing. Yeah, and 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 I, I should point out, you, if you don't, you have to meet those affordability to be able to get to the state board. But you're right; you would still get, you know, seventy five, um, you know, market rate units. That's absolutely correct. Mm. So, are we talking mostly rental units, or are these things that would be sold as like condos? It, it doesn't distinguish between rental and mm. yeah. Um, you know, if at 15 units per acre, you're probably talking about apartments in apartment buildings that are probably rental, but they could be co-ops, condominiums. And, you know, one of the issues that, that, you know, first of all, two things I'm going to mention on this one, you know, transit oriented development is a great thing. It's a good idea. The idea is you live, you can get on the train and go to work. Anybody getting on the train in Amagansett and going to work? I think there's one guy. There's one guy, and every time I've taken the train in the morning, I see him. So, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, not not all train stations are, are created right. equal. And the other the other thing I think, you know, for the, for the East End is if you, say, build 3% more units in the next three years, they're all going to be luxury condominiums. I yeah. mean... You know, increasing the supply by three percent, increasing the supply by ten percent out here, wouldn't you know? Would, wouldn't drive the price down to an, an, an affordable level. They're just, you know, I mean, look look at the housing market now. Brendan knows this because he talks about it all the time, and that is, there's no supply out there right now. So there there's plenty of demand still for you know, in, in especially in the you know, in the second home market, but there just isn't a lot of supply. I think that's what's always so strange is that you have, you know, somebody up in, in Albany, you know, the governor is, is well acquainted with these upstate regions. And I feel like they're sort of creating a plan that really works maybe in those areas, but it's not, they don't really know the scene out here and what we're dealing with, I guess. Is that accurate? Well, and, and yeah, I, and it's not just our area. I mean, you know, every community... You know, we talked about this when we were talking about the community housing fund and putting a plan together. You know, South Hole is going to be different than East Hampton. You know, Shelter Island is going to be different than everybody. Um, you know, there there are you know certain quite you know certain characteristics in each town that are slightly different, which you know this doesn't recognize. I mean, it's stark, I think, on the East End only because of our real estate market. You know, and just you know just building more housing by itself without doing some of the things we talk about with the community housing fund, you know, to, to help subsidize units. I mean, density alone isn't going to make things more affordable. Just, hey, more supply doesn't, isn't going to drive down the, the price to an affordable level. Well, I very much get the feeling that if you're adding a bunch of market rate apartments by train stations on the South Fork, those are going to be apartments that sit empty for 10 months out of the year. And then it's gonna be somebody's, you know, uh, pied-a-terre for yeah. uh, a low-level Wall Street couple that maybe they can't afford the $5 million house yet, but they can't afford the $1 million, $2 million apartment that's right in the middle of Southampton Village. And there's no obligation that they have to work locally. So it's not solving 
worker shortages. It's not even solving the housing shortages because it's a second home or a third home for somebody that already lives in New York. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the plan doesn't really recognize, you know, the, 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 that the need is for year round housing for the workforce out here. And, you know, it isn't really focused on that, you know, so l listen, this has obviously got a lot, a lot of attention. Uh, you know, the, the legislature doesn't want to say, just say no to the governor and do nothing. They want to present an alternative because they recognize that, you know, there is a, a crisis and there's there's a demand. And, you know, I, I think the legislature wants to build in a more of an affordable affordability element into this. I think rather than, you know, using a, a you know, a hammer, maybe some carrots might be in order. You know, there's, there's talk about, uh, you know, providing, you know, uh, increased, you know, uh, financial assistance to towns that meet the target. Um, maybe those that meet the target get some extra points when the state is grading their their water quality application for for a, a sewer plant or you know sewer infrastructure or water infrastructure. I think the approach is going to be to to leave her. Uh, you know, her targets in place, but to use incentives as opposed to mandates to reach them. Do you have any idea what the growth rate is in the East End towns right now? Yeah, I, it is probably, you know, it depends on how you look at it, because, you know, so much of this now, there isn't that much, and this is the other thing, there are communities that have lots of vacant land left and communities that don't have that much vacant land left. You know, a lot of the housing activity where we are now is 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 are either substantial renovations or or teardowns. So the number of actual new units is we're probably in the last few years, as far as new units, we're probably below that three percent. I I I might suspect. Do you think a little below or like a lot below? Uh, a little below, uh, not 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 a lot below. But but what that doesn't take into account is like you know the, the number of units that that got built here like between you know 1990 and like maybe 20 2010 2015. You know when, when I was the, the 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 town attorney for Southampton and we were doing the comp plan. You know, the, the rule of thumb when we did the comp plan was at that point, one third of the land was developed, one third of the land was protected, and one third was up for grabs. That was in the, the middle 1980s. And that one third up for grabs is like five or six percent now. You know, I mean, between land preservation to, to, to some extent and really mostly development, um, you know, it's that land is spoken for. I'll tell you another thing it doesn't take into consideration is with if there's a teardown and what you tear down is a 1500 square foot cottage and you build a 6000 square foot house on it. That's a one to one ratio. You you have you had one unit before you have one unit after, but you've now lost an affordable house. And, and it's gotten no worse and, and and that's not even factored into the calculations that we're talking about and that's really where most of the most of the you know construction you know when you look at it that's where most of the construction has been and you've you've had a lot of people that came out during the pandemic you know bought a house and now they're adapting it to what what they want it to be you know and so you've had that too mm -hmm.
this is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. So you're not a you're not a huge fan of the governor's plan, right? I mean, you've but I, but what I hear you saying is that while you're critical of it, you want to use it as a starting point for a conversation rather than simply saying, get get this out of here. Yeah, that you know, there. Listen, we there's a reason why we we had the referendum last year. There's a problem, and we we've, we've got to provide more housing. The governor's right on target with that. I I just think, you know, her approach to this was, you know, instead of, you know, working with local governments and and, and working with communities to find out what might work, you know, this was kind of a a, a top down approach. So. For me, it 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 should be more incentive based. We should be incentivizing this, uh, and you get you know you get some credit for meeting the goals, uh, as opposed to you know just mandating it. Does the governor's plan at all take into account a need for for infrastructure to to support a three percent increase in housing? And I'm thinking of um, you know sewer districts, sewer you know um, you know that type of thing. Yeah, the answer is yes, but not enough. The governor proposes $250 million for infrastructure. Um, we could probably spend that on the East End. In a month. Now, admittedly, there's also additional infrastructure money and, in, you know, in water quality bonds and the Bond Act and those things. But there would have to be, you know, when I, when I talk to some of the local towns, you know, it, it really hasn't been you know, in, in some, you know, there, there's political will, and we've talked about that, but where you, you have a willing town and a willing community, um, the limitation on an affordable housing project hasn't been zoning. It's been the Suffolk County Sanitary Code. Yeah. If you don't have public water or if you don't have sewer, the, the amount of units that you can build under the Sanitary Code, which is there for good reason, you know, we're trying to protect water quality, which has been declining, but you need the infrastructure, which brings me to our next point. And and I saw you recently at a at a at a first flush event um, in in West Hampton Beach, Fred, and it was a great event. Um, certainly, West Hampton Beach figured it out as as to, you know hooking into county sewers and all that. Um, but during your remarks, you you talked about CPF and and you talked about how you know there's a twenty percent of of CPF can now go for. Um, you know, wa- water quality improvements. And you talked about raising that percentage. And we were just talking about, you know, CPF of, of the past. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. Right. So so what's what what's the plan and, and what 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 percentage as, as we start to run out of properties to preserve and and we start to look toward the successes like West Hampton Beach and and needs in yeah. Southampton Village and East Hampton Village and and, and Montauk. Um, how do we move from, you know, from from the land preservation end to the water quality end and the percentage of CPF? Obviously, you would need referendums and you know and 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 all that. But what's 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 your ultimate goal there? Yeah, well, 
here's a, I guess, a news story. We're going to put together, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, a kind of a future of the CPF. It's 25 years. We're going to put together a future of the CPF committee here in the next couple of weeks, which would include the towns, the local governments, but also, you know, all of the stakeholders that have been involved with the Community Preservation Fund, you know, the farm community, the environmental community, uh, real estate community, uh, finance, you know, all the people that were involved with this to begin with to look at you know, the, the, the next 25 years for the Community Preservation Fund. And, you know, I think the, the issue of water quality infrastructure is certainly one of those issues. Uh, Joe, I think you've alluded this in, in, in one of your editorials. I think it, I, I forget in what context, but, you know, the way the law is written now um, with regard to, to historic preservation projects, the ability to, uh, it can only be used for, the capital expense of fixing these things up, but not for keeping them up. Uh, you know, that would be kind of, that's not today's topic, but that would be one of the things that, that we're uh, looking at. And, you know, I think, you know, to even look further down the road is, uh, you know, consistent with the original purpose of the Community Preservation Fund. Um, there's going to be the need to finance projects that deal with uh, climate change. Uh, a lot of our communities are going to be facing infrastructure issues with regard to climate change. So, you know, I, I, I see looking at, you know, land preservation, the plans have to be completed. But but as I said, you know, there's not that much land left. It's not the 33%. It's like 5 or 6%. And then that goes hand in hand with, with the community housing fund, if you're going to be um, with, with, with those funds um, in some percentage anyway, building um, you know, asking the towns to, you know, to construct new construction, new housing, um, you know, that if you then have CPF money that can be used for sewer districts or, or, or high end septics or whatever. Yeah. If you look around almost every, for almost every downtown, you know, Sag Harbor, you know, they were fortunate enough. And, you know, when the federal government was paying for sewage treatment in the 1970s, you know, I, I think uh, you know Greenport, West Hampton, fortunate to be close to the uh, the, the um, airport, the sewer plant at the airport. But you know, look at you know East Hampton Village is looking at you know sewage treatment for downtown. It's been pretty controversial as, as to the location, but for Montauk, they're looking at at sewers. You know, Jay Schneiderman has been looking at it for Hampton Bays and Flanders, you know, South yeah, it's Flanders, Southampton Village. I mean, we're going to, it's, it's, it's twofold. We're, we're going to need funding, capital funding for water quality. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, that sewer infrastructure is going to be necessary to, to, for the CHF to make it to be as, as useful as possible, because you're going to need that infrastructure to, sure. to be able to do some of these projects. You know, Fred, you said something interesting, which is that, the biggest problem in getting affordable housing is about infrastructure and, and, and that the county's septics has really been one of the big limiting factors. I think that's absolutely true. I will say this. We just recently, this goes back to the point of the editorial, I think. We just recently had an express sessions event in Sag Harbor. And Jesse Matsuoka was on our panel. And as you know, every single 
express sessions event becomes about affordable housing. And in, in this instance, it was about sort of talking about how the main streets evolving and Jesse, I thought spoke really eloquently about the issues and the need for more affordable housing. And I think the consensus opinion, if I can sum it up was we absolutely need more affordable housing, but not in Sag Harbor because it's too dense in Sag Harbor and we'd like to see it somewhere else, but pretty clearly we can't build any more in Sag Harbor. I think that is, is what we're going to have to get past, not just in Sag. I think there is sort of still an opposition to saying we want to put affordable housing here and, and embracing it and, and saying, I mean, the, the talk was that Sag Harbor is the densest, community um, on the South Fork as far as how it's developed. And I think there may be truth to that, but I also think it makes a lot of sense to put some affordable housing in Sag Harbor Village and convincing people of that point still is a sticking point. Yeah, and 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 Sag Harbor wouldn't be alone in, the, in that no. point, I, I think also. Yeah, absolutely not. They have the sewers though, that's the thing. And, and that's why I think, you know, it's gonna take you know, the, the community housing fund was written with great flexibility for local governments because it's going to take a whole menu of things to do. You know, in a place like Sag Harbor, you know, I think there's a great potential for ex- accessory apartments, um, apartments over stores, uh, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's there's some locations, I think, where, you know, you you, you could you know, do some affordable housing. I, Sag Harbor is, you know, having been the village attorney there when we uh, had to survey every lot in the town when we were looking at uh, limitations on gro- gross floor area, there's not a lot of, of vacant properties. But, you know, I think there's some potential, you know, around around the business district. How about Marston Street, affordable housing? Anybody brought that up yet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what, what they need now at Marsden Street, because, it, you know, just, so let's just roll that into uh, into that discussion, right? But You heard it here first. Yeah, but, but I, I think, you know, every community is going to be a little different. And there's, you know, I, I, I see a place like Sag Harbor with, you know, accessory uh, apartments and apartments over stores or, you know, have some potential. I mean, with the stores, I mean, those those three story, four story buildings are there already. You know, some of them are apartments already. You know, you certainly could do more there. So as Joe told you about his idea for the Kmart, turning Kmart into a affordable housing development. Well, you know, I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to pick on any one location, but, you know, commercial retail, you know, big box stores, you know, shopping malls, um, you know, the world's going to look, it's starting to look different already. It's going to look different 10 years from now. Redevelopment of those kinds of properties for affordable housing. I think there's, there's potential. I'm not trying to put any shopping mall out of business yet, but, you know, um, you know, I, I, all I know is that, you know, when I, when I, when I go home at night, sometimes I, I feel like I'm the, uh, uh, a, a depot for Amazon, you know? So, uh, um, you know, behaviors are changing. I support the idea of the Kmart redevelopment, by the way, but I think it may have been Brendan who brought that up. Well, I, I listen. I, I, I think conversion of of existing existing uh, retail space that there's something 
they're already, you know, just developed disturbed areas. I think there's there that's a one of the potential opportunities I think for housing. But back back to Joe's point about about the the nimbyism, and I think that's what he was was describing. Sag Harbor and other places, you see it in in Hampton Bays as well when they talk about redevelopment there and 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 all that. Is that is that nimbyism? Is that like it or not, is that part of, of, could that be part of a success of the governor's proposal of, of mandates if, if communities are unwilling to, 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 to build or to be open to, to development? If you have, if you have, you know, if you have mandates that say you have to build, then, then it, it takes that, that choice, that complaint away from, from, from the NIMBYs, right? I mean, is that, um, well, listen, I, I, I oppose the governor's general thrust here, but and, and I don't think that 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 will win the day this year. But, you know, if if no progress is made on an affordable housing, me, I, you know, I would try, as I said, incentives. I would use right. the carrots rather than the sticks first. But. You know, if you provide the carrots and something still doesn't happen, then you know, you know, you're inviting uh, you know, more more drastic uh, alternatives. So, listen, I, I think it takes a mix of things. You know, we we still have to try to make some of the existing housing more affordable. Uh, accessory apartments, I think, is something that that we have. You know, that that on the east end can really work. But there are going to be projects. I don't think you can do a hundred-unit project or a seventy-five-unit project. But you can you can do you know the ones that that have had the most success have been like twenty units, thirty units, and you know I think you know there's the potential certainly you know to do that. Right. So, is there anything else that we want to add um, to our conversation about the CPF and CHF? Hey, you know what I didn't bring up? I didn't bring up the penguins <laughs> once. Don't. Today. Don't, don't. <laughs> it's painful right now. Save the penguins for yeah. our climate change podcast. There you go. <laughs> talking about actual penguins, right? That you really good. want to hurt me. Hey, Joe. Ser seriously, thanks for giving me the opportunity to absolutely. To I think it, I, I think it was it. worth it, and I think uh, your points are all good ones. So well, well, well done, sir. Hey, hey what, what I always like dealing well, well dealing with all of you, but is that. We, we, we can have a disagreement and it doesn't affect Absolutely. anything. And I really appreciate it. And just that. for the record, when we Thanks. did the podcast last time, I think Bill and I were pushing back on Joe's point a little bit, you know, about. <laughs> uh... Well, I, I, I could hear Steve Coates too, too. He's like, are you really going to say that? It's like, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. like Fred, it wasn't us. He was... <laughs> and, and I fully, I fully, uh, except that sometimes I can be a little provocative just to be a little provocative and maybe that yeah. maybe that was over a line. It comes out it comes with the territory. Understood. Yeah. All right. Listen, thanks for the chance. I appreciate it. Thanks, Fred. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. 
Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 